Good morning again. Normally we don't have people up here twice in the same service doing communion and then preaching as well, but we have an elder who's fresh off of surgery. We have elders who are traveling. So hopefully having me up here twice in the same service will actually be a great illustration of the value of silence uh, when this is all said and done with. So this morning we continue that sermon series we've discussed examining the time-tested, biblically-warranted Christian spiritual disciplines. So in our first week, we discussed prayer, which we loosely defined as calling on the name of the Lord from Genesis 4. Next, we studied rest, obeying God's command to rest and finding our rest in God. And then last week, we talked about Bible study, reading God's revelation of himself for our transformation and for our good. Now, it's important to remember throughout this entire sermon series that these disciplines are not meant to be heavy burdens. This is not just us jumping through religious hoops. These are not meaningless exercises to try and keep us on God's good side. These disciplines are tools we use to grow us in godliness, ultimately for God's glory. In short, we don't practice these things to make God love us more. We practice them to teach ourselves to love him more. Now, so far, none of the disciplines that we've covered have been particularly surprising. I mean, prayer, rest, and Bible study... Those are three of the classics, aren't they? These have been standard Christian practice for many, if not most believers, for generations. They can be incorporated into your daily life without turning your whole world upside down. And they're common enough that even a non-believer probably won't think you're all that weird if you do them. But our discipline for today or rather our disciplines, might seem a little more foreign to us. These disciplines seem to fit better in the realms of monks and nuns, shamans and gurus, philosophers and prophets, than they do in the lives of ordinary people like us. We're talking about the distinct but closely related spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude. So what does the Bible say about these practices? How do they differ and how do they overlap? How do they complement the other disciplines that we've discussed so far? And what spiritual and practical value do they really have for normal Christians like us? We'll open your Bibles to Psalm 62. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for Sunday. Thank you that whether it's winter or summer, whether it's snowy or dry, sunny or cloudy, we have the privilege of worshiping you. And I pray that we would not take that for granted. Uh, This time... A year ago or this time two years ago, things were up in the air on Sunday mornings of 
when we were going to worship or when we weren't going to worship or were we going to have service or were we not or should we come in or should we stay home and, and watch online. But Lord, thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity of gathering in person today and offering you praise. Uh, I pray that we would not take that for granted. Lord, thank you for the disciplines that we've read so far the past three weeks and these disciplines that we'll examine today. Uh, give us ears to hear, especially today, as these disciplines might seem a little more far-fetched to us. But uh, give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to hear what you might have to say to us and to consider how these disciplines might actually grow us in our love for you. And Lord, as we sang earlier, thank you that your love for us doesn't change. Uh, even though our faithfulness to you and our holiness is often a, a roller coaster of ups and downs as we learn to be more like you, thank you that your love for us is constant and steady and unchanging. Uh, Lord, help us not overlook that, that glorious fact. So again, thank you for bringing us here. I pray our worship would be honoring to you and good for us. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, reading Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balance as they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. While we don't know the exact circumstances of this psalm, it's clear that King David is down on his luck. He feels alienated, attacked, and maligned. He seems to bounce back and forth between frustration and hope which you read quite a bit in the Psalms. So what does David do to get himself out of this situation? Well, he waits for God. He trusts in God in silence. It's easy to wonder what David is really accomplishing here. Some might tell him to get up and do something about his problems rather than just quietly waiting around. Don't be such a doormat, David. Take action. But in David's mind, he is taking action. 
silently waiting for and trusting in God isn't doing nothing. In fact, sometimes silence can be an expression of faith. There are times when we must accept the fact that there isn't really anything we can do to solve our problems. We live in a fallen world and we are finite beings. There are situations we can't resolve. There are breaks that we can't fix. No yelling, no whining and no rhetoric is going to help. And in those times, we would do well to learn from David in Psalm 62. Sometimes we have no choice but to wait on God, to trust in God, to have a quiet confidence that while we can't do anything about our predicament, God can. We wait, we hope, we trust in silence. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, God tells the rebellious Israelites that the real solution to their problem of their coming exile isn't turning to Egypt for help. Rather, it's quietly trusting in him. Sometimes silence is an expression of faith. Silence can also be an expression of reverence. Now, this is not some brilliant new insight. In fact, it's not even uniquely Christian. It's something we can all recognize. We've all participated in public moments of silence. Or maybe you visited a historic site or a memorial that specifically requested silence as a means of paying respect. We seem to inherently know that there are times and there are places of such significance that words and noise simply don't belong. That can also include worship. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 1, says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The prophet Habakkuk mocks those who speak to idols of stone and gold and silver. But he says that when you come into the presence of the one true God and his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Perhaps you've asked yourself or asked others, when you die and stand before God, what big existential theological questions are you going to ask him? Well, the truth is that we'll probably ask him nothing at first. His glory will be so overwhelming that we would not dare speak. When we hear the word worship, we often think of singing. And you know, that's perfectly appropriate. There is plenty of biblical reason to make that connection. 
But don't forget that silence can also be an expression of worship. When we consider the work of God's hands in creation, his eternal attributes like holiness and goodness and sovereignty, when we think about his stunning accomplishments of power and faithfulness in history, our best response might be to fall down in awe and wonder and quietly recognize that even our most poetic words and our most beautiful music simply could not do him justice. Sometimes the best way to worship is to let all the earth keep silence before God. So silence can be an expression of faith. It can be an act of worship. But the spiritual discipline can also help us better hear God's voice. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah is coming off a resounding victory over his idol-worshipping opponents. But Elijah is also fearing for his life. He's questioning his calling and maybe even doubting God's goodness. And it's in that deep valley of desperation, doubt, and despair that Elijah hears God's voice. The voice does not come in a roaring wind. It doesn't come in a jolting earthquake. It doesn't arrive in the form of a raging fire. When Elijah hears God speak, it's in a low whisper. We said last week that if you want to know God, if you want to hear God's voice, the first place you should turn is Scripture. Well, your study of Scripture, and for that matter, your disciplines of rest and prayer along with it, would probably be well served by some silence and solitude. Now, we certainly need to practice those disciplines in community. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But there is also great value in learning to do those things on your own. There are countless voices in this world trying to teach and persuade and sometimes even mislead us. So sometimes the best thing we can do is break free from the noise and give ourselves the opportunity to better hear God's voice. To set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.2. The missionary Jim Elliott, who ultimately died on the mission field, said this. I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements. Noise, hurry, crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. Noise can drown out God's voice. So maybe the discipline of silence can help us be better listeners. Now, so far, our focus has been on the more spiritual values of this discipline. It can be an expression of faith. It can be an act of worship. It can help us better hear God's voice. But what about the more practical values that this discipline might offer? What are some of the more clearly applicable 
action-oriented ways that this discipline can grow us in godliness and grow us in our love for God. Well, silence can allow us, or maybe even force us, to examine ourselves more deeply than we usually do. At times, the hustle and bustle of everyday life, the noise, the hurry, and the crowds we just mentioned, sometimes those can distract us from ugly truths about ourselves. Getting rid of those distractions and sitting in silence with no one else but us and God gives us the chance to confront sins and confronts doubts that we'd prefer to not deal with, that we'd prefer to paper over. I have to wonder if some of that happened with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. If you think back to that story, he was struck mute for nine months due to his lack of faith in God's promises. I imagine that gave Zechariah a lot of time to think. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, We are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. Preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, I commend solitude to any of you who are seeking salvation. First, that you may study well your case as in the sight of God. Few men truly know themselves as they really are. Most people have seen themselves through a looking glass. But there is another looking glass which gives true reflection into which few men look. He's referring to scripture there. To study oneself in the light of God's word and carefully go over one's condition, examining both the inward and the outward sins and using all the tests which are given us in the scriptures would be a very healthy exercise. But how very few care to go through it. It might be difficult, but silence can help us better examine ourselves. On top of that, silence can help us learn to tame our tongues. James warns us of how dangerous speech can be. In James 1.26, he writes that if we claim to be religious but cannot control our speech, then our religion is worthless. And in chapter 3, verse 5, James compares our tongues to a small spark that can ignite an entire forest. Whether it's gossip, slander, cursing, or an idolatrous obsession with being heard, noticed, or praised, our tongues can lead us into a world of unrighteousness. So perhaps the spiritual discipline of silence can be one small tool to wean us off of those addictions and help us repent of those sins. And finally, silence might help us better navigate the relationships that God has given us in this world. As Ecclesiastes 3.7 tells us, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. I think we all know that on paper, but it's a little more difficult in practice, isn't it? Proverbs 26.4 and 5 is a classic reminder 
of the discernment that we need to determine when to speak and when to be silent. Sometimes it's wise to speak up and correct a fool. And sometimes it isn't. It depends on the situation. Let's pray that God would give us the wisdom to make those determinations for the sake of obeying him and for the sake of loving our neighbors. Again, maybe this discipline of silence can help us train those instincts of discernment, when to speak and when not. What exactly does it say about us if we have such a hard time being quiet? What does it say about us if we have such a hard time being alone? Like we mentioned earlier, Scripture stresses the importance of fellowship among brothers and sisters in Christ. And naturally, that involves noise and community, which are the opposites of silence and solitude. But if we are incapable of being alone with ourselves and God, if we are unable to sit quietly before the Lord, we may have gone too far in emphasizing the importance of fellowship. If Jesus himself found value in silence and solitude, which the Gospels tell us that he did, then maybe we should give them a shot as well. But practically speaking, how do we actually do it? Well, a couple of quick ideas. Number one, consider taking some kind of retreat. That may sound like a no-brainer to you, But Christians have been doing it for centuries because it really does work. You don't have to stay overnight anywhere. You don't even have to leave your house. Just intentionally set aside time to focus your mind on Christ. Get yourself out of the noise, hurry, and crowds of everyday life, even if just for a moment. And practice those disciplines we've already discussed. Things like prayer. And rest and Bible study. Imagine if we took a tenth of the time and the energy and the planning and the money that we spend on vacations and devoted that to some form of retreat. We'd probably be in much better spiritual health than we are. Another tip is to consider taking a break from technology. You had to know that was coming. While iPhones and social media and all kinds of other innovations are not all bad, they can also wreak havoc on our spiritual well-being if we let them run rampant and unchecked in our lives. We'll talk some later this year about how Christians should and shouldn't relate to modern technology in terms of our faithfulness to Christ. But for now, I don't think it's a stretch to say That much of modern technology, for all the good that it can offer, is not exactly conducive to silence and solitude. So consider taking a break for your own good and for your own godliness. Look at Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. We find the Israelites, fresh out of slavery in Egypt making their way through the wilderness. But Pharaoh had changed his mind and decided that he didn't want them to go free. So he's hunting them down. 
We pick up in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Think back to what David said in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. In Exodus 14, the Israelites had to live that out in the face of death itself. With an army on one side and the sea on the other, Moses told them to sit down, be quiet, and wait for God's deliverance. And sure enough, God came through. God fought for them. God saved them. And God hasn't just come through for the Israelites staring down Pharaoh's army. He's come through for all of us as we stare down our sin. Thanks to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We didn't contribute anything to that fight by our own power. And guess what? God still came through. God still won the fight. Like David in Psalm 62, it looks like we didn't do much of anything. Well, from God came our salvation. So may we continually learn to wait silently for the Lord. Not just in our salvation that happened five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago when we first believed, but as a regular discipline now for our godliness, for our growth, for our maturity. He will fight for us. He's already proven that. We have only to be silent. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And even though very little of our worship services are silence, it seems like somebody's always praying, somebody's always singing, somebody's always speaking or preaching. Lord, thank you that we can come before you and that we can trust that you fight for us, that you love us, that you save us. That we don't have to yell, we don't have to kick, we don't have to scream, we don't have to make any arguments or present any cases. Lord, you save us by your grace. And we simply wait, and we simply trust, and we simply hope with quiet confidence that you come through for us. And again, Lord, the same way that we didn't do much of anything when it comes to our salvation, it's all a product of your grace. Remind us that still to this day, 
even after weeks or months or years of following you and knowing you, we can and we should still silently wait for you. Help us grow in our desire to spend time alone with you. Grow us in our desire to be quiet before you, to get away from the things that might distract us from your presence and from your voice. Give us ears to hear. Lord, give us the discipline that we need to grow in godliness by spending time with you and you alone. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.